So here we are, podcast 20. Whoever thought we'd make it to uh, the 20s. With me, I have Don and Cole and myself. We are sitting in Holland, waiting for wind to clear on a jump course and getting bugged about doing a podcast around Grimp North America. So here it is, the podcast around Grimp North America. What we're going to chat about is competition in general. Is it good? Is it bad? Do these things provide any value? We're going to talk about live victims in these types of things, like competition, training. I know there's some different opinions on that out there. And we're going to talk about all five scenarios. So Ronan had a bit of a unique experience at Grimp NA this year. We had eight people down there as staff that were working the event, helping set up scenarios, what have you. That's where Don's opinion and insights on this come into. And then we also had a team down there competing as 49th Parallel. Cole was a member of that team. That's where his opinions are going to come in on this. So without any further ado, let's talk about competition in general. Is it good? Is it bad? Should we be doing competitions? There's now at least four Grimps, if you want to call that, around the world. China, Taiwan, Namur, Belgium, and now North America. There's Roco Rescue Challenge. There's other rescue challenges that are out there. Are we putting undue stress on people? Are we creating a sporting event out of something that should be taken more seriously? Is it provide any value? Don, let's start over there. Competition and rescue. Um, wow, good question. Thanks for having us here, Mark. Um, competition and rescue is one of those things that will instill uh, a sense of urgency that you just cannot get an, an otherwise normal training day. We can train our rope rescue systems as, for as long as we want, as fast as we want, but we will never have that sense of urgency as like we would in a real rescue. And the second best thing to that real rescue is a competitive uh, scenario. Cool. Thoughts? Yeah, I agree with very much with Don here. Um, uh, it's a bit of a different system, a bit of a different outlook when you're uh, performing your rescues. You're worried about things like judging and scorecards and stuff like that. Those things are kind of on the periphery when you really get into it. Once you really get into the scenario and involve yourself in the situation, a lot of that stuff kind of falls away. And you get very immersed in it. And uh, like Don was saying, um, second only to a real-world situation, it's the kind of um, stress that brings a team together to perform at their best and um, uh, really brings cohesion um, with the team and um, makes them problem-solve in a way that really you're only going to see in a real-world situation. All the other kind of training you're going to do um, outside of that is really in a super-controlled environment where... Um, you're probably very familiar with the train. You've probably been to the same spot a lot of times. Um, you're familiar with the props and stuff you're using and the gear you're using, and you're not really faced with something off the cuff. Um, this kind of situation brings that um, very close to a real-world situation where you're forced to problem-solve and uh, work as a team and um, you know have some stress and pressure that you're not going to find any other way. So, I guess something that could be said about the stress and the pressure the stress and the pressure in this, much like a real rescue, is in reality self-induced. Mm. There is no judge putting a loaded gun to your head saying, if you don't have this done in 20 minutes, I'm pulling the trigger. Everything that is in here is self-induced, which is very much like what happens in a real rescue. Yes? No? Well, yes. Um, it, the stresses come in different forms, but the end result is very similar. 
like your your monkey mind is going to interpret stress and you're going to sweat and you're going to your voice will raise and people's words will get short and you'll feel the intensity it's a stress test any competition like that is, is some kind of stress test and you know we've um, and that that's a whole point of, of these grim competitions is to simulate the next best thing we can get to those scenarios where uh, and anybody who's been in the breach in, in a live rescue who's had to function under, the, under those scenarios knows that, okay, this isn't like training at the fire hall anymore. This isn't like, you know, some contrived situation. We've had to show up blind, problem solve, and find a solution to this problem. Now, once you put a person in the basket, Cole, the stress is pretty much the same. I mean, once you put a live victim over the edge... The stress of doing it on a competition or for real, it's you've got somebody dangling in the air. Does that add to the stress you feel? Like having a live patient, does it make you change the way you're doing your rigging? I don't think so. I think um, the way the teams have uh, trained in the past, we have uh, a lot of confidence in the systems we created and the safety checks and balances that are in there um, really are proven over and over and over again. Um, and in spite of the fact we have one of our own in the basket, and there's a live load in there, and there is that element of extra danger. Um, again, the reality is that we've trained that way so many times, and we've uh, <clears throat> um, built redundant systems that are, um, you know, I, I don't want to say impossible to fail, but very unlikely to fail. Um, we trust what we're doing. We trust the teammates we're with, and uh, the guy in the basket trusts us as well. Um, so it's something that we become accustomed to, and if that was a you know an injured um, patient that was in the basket, it would be really the same thing. We've built systems um, uh, over and over and over again to the point where we're doing it, you know, um, subconsciously, and uh, we have our teammates checking over the systems and safety checks and balances are in, and uh, um, we trust that nobody's going to get hurt. Okay, so that kind of pushes us right into live victims. And I mean, you're saying it's not any more stressful having a live victim in there, saying the systems are safe. There's a lot of comments out there about, should we be using live victims in scenario-based training? Are we putting those people at undue risk? Uh, okay, there's a risk-benefit analysis that must take place. <clears throat> when you're working with a rescue Randy doll, that rescue Randy Dell is not going to be able to tell you if he's got a pinch point. He's not going to flinch if you manhandle him and or aggravate an injury, etc., etc. When you have somebody that you know in that basket stretcher and you'd like to keep them safe, you're going to check in on them. You, you care for their well-being. It's a simulated patient care scenario, and that's what ultimately rescue is all about. Rescue isn't just about rigging up a road system and looking cool or repelling off a castle. It's about patient care. And it's transportation. It's a mode of transportation from point A to point B. And it's not traveling first class. It can be rough, and if you're not careful, yeah, people can get hurt. I mean, Mark, you and I have seen this live action with, it, <laughs> with uh, an incident I won't get too far into the uh, down the rabbit hole on. But, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, we've seen what happens when, we, when live loads go wrong. And we also understand that, uh, you know, the magnitude of the reaction and the... Uh, and the precautions and, you know, procedures that were implemented as a result of the incident that I speak of have changed, uh, I would say, the European competition and rescue ind industry, so to speak, for the better. So, risk-benefit analysis. Um, okay, cool. What you were running as the uh, rescuer on a few of those at, in the Iowa? Yeah. 
Now, with you being the rescuer, having the live patient in there, what would you? What are you doing differently than if that was Rescue Randy instead of Jeff? Um, speaking personally from the perspective of a rescuer, in those situations and in training in general, it's um, it's a different level of person uh, personability. Uh, you have an actual person in the basket, you move them differently. Like you try and simulate your roles and you try and simulate all that stuff, but the reality is if you're using a rescue Randy and you're under a time crunch, um, and like Don said, you're not going to hear about pinch points, you're not going to hear about little things like that that are important. Um, it changes the dynamic of how you interact with the patient and the kind of patient care you're going to give. You can simulate those things and pretend and, you know, pretend that you're talking to the guy and making sure he's in good condition, you know, moving him out of the sun, make sure all, all those things are taken care of. Um, but when it's an actual live load, you, you pay attention to that kind of stuff. Um, you pay close attention to that kind of stuff and it becomes more of a personal situation. It's a lot closer to reality. Um, and uh, I think in the end it gives you a better um, dynamic of how you um, pull off the rescue in, in the end. Uh, as far as the risk benefit is concerned, uh, like Don said, I think definitely from the rescuer's point of view, having a live load in the basket um, is of great advantage because it's a lot closer to reality and it changes really how you interact uh, with either your rescue Randy or, or a real person. Um, it makes a big difference. There's, well, there's that and, and also when you have a live load and you train with live loads all the time, you when it comes to an actual... Uh, live rescue scenario, you know, you're going to be well prepared for that. When you train with a rescue Randy doll or some kind of mannequin um, and you say, well, you know, we're going to do it like this today, but, you know, on, on the real rescue, you know, we make an effort to cover yeah. the person's face and, yeah. you know, cover them, put a blanket on them, etc., right? You know, you can talk about that, but we all know that you, you play like you practice. Yeah, you fight, you'll, you'll go. You fight you like will, you train, and if you if you'll you, go to the yeah. level of your training, your training, exactly. however high that is, your competency will training, default yeah. to the level of your training. Yeah, and absolutely. if you train halfway and say, you know, okay, in my mind, I'm going to go the other half, and yeah, we'll call it a day for training, and that's and that's the extent of your 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 rescue training. Then, you know, I you you may come up short on the day, and yeah. you don't want to do that, right? So, having said that, there are times where Maybe, you know, excessive height, maybe inexperienced trainees. Mm -hmm. Perhaps maybe you have people who are not confident. Yep. They're very new to this trade, very new with uh, their skill set. And maybe the instructor, the person leading the, uh, the scenario, that's a judgment call on their part. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not a slight against the people they're training. It's like, you know what, maybe uh, with a few more hours, you know, on descent control, you know, maybe they would feel more comfortable. If somebody looks visibly uncomfortable, Working in their systems, I'm, as an instructor, I'm going to be hesitant to, to put a live load. Absolutely. From that perspective of an instructor and level of uh, ability and experience, that's definitely something to consider. Um, you know, when we get a little, when we're, we're, where we're at here with the grip NA and that kind of level, <clears throat> definitely with you guys and um, Euro and all that kind of stuff, I think the live load has a lot of benefits. And, and you know, like Mark can attest, you know, we, we've had a number of years now where we've had the, the benefit of seeing these things play out. And, you know, we've seen really amazing patient care and really, really world-class, you know, procedures. And we've seen the other end of the spectrum as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's the live load. You will never get a more a quicker response than somebody who is a live load in that basket stretcher who is, who is losing circulation to their arm or their leg or whatever, whatever that might be. 
So to sum this up, basically what I'm hearing is competition is good. It introduces a stress that you can't find in station training or in in-service drills that is as close to replication as a real-world event as you can get. And having live victims at a certain competency of either training and or competition is valuable. Having those live loads in a lesser level of training and or competition is not valuable and could be dangerous. It's, yeah, it's like an introductory level of uh, training. Then you might want to consider using weighted basket stretcher yeah. or a mannequin or something like that. And as the instructor or the leader's confidence in their trainees or their team rises, you know, I think maybe we can graduate to live loads. Absolutely. Know, and or consider the scenario, right? Consider the what is the worst case scenario if I fail this system right now? Yeah. What's going to happen? You know, and so, you know, it's a judgment call. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so specifically into GRIMP North America then now, five scenarios, and um, yeah, you hear some background noise, we got people coming in and out, like I said, we got 10 of us over in Holland on a jump course right now, so people are coming back and forth, and uh, as we do this, as we wait for wind, so we'll start with the uh, the Highline scenario, well, I'll start with the best, eh, Cole? Uh, <laughs> Shots fired. Oh, yeah. Pull it out of my back. Oh, God. So um, I have a unique insight into all of these scenarios because I was on the team that set them up. Um, it's one of those where we wanted to make them difficult but not impossible. All scenarios had a 90-minute end time in them for people that didn't attend. That 90 minutes included everything. That was the brief to the team lead, the team leads brief to the team, the team doing the scenario as we were on a fixed timeline on the Iowa, we had to clear out at a certain time every day. So every scenario stopped and started on a buzzer, basically. And if there was a 50, there was a 30 minute left notice and a 15 minute left notice, and at 15 minutes, the evaluator had the ability to call the scenario if they didn't or she didn't feel that that team was going to finish in the 15 minutes because we had to rotate and get to the next scenario. So starting with the Highline scenario. Cole, we'll start with you. Um, some of the challenges with that scenario, everybody's sitting here thinking, hey, it was a high line, so what? Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I, I built a million high lines and uh, basically defaulted to what we thought was going to be the right one for the day. But the challenges in this particular situation were um, uh, communication right off the bat. So the whole premise of GRIMP, for those that don't know, is you have a controller, delivers uh, communication to uh, your team leader about what the scenario is, um, gives them limitations on things you cannot cannot do in that scenario. Um, then your team leader, that's when the clock starts. Then your team leader brings that back to the team, delivers the brief, and uh, basically deploys the team to um, execute the rescue. So in this particular situation, we had a lot of um, uh, a lot of barriers to overcome. Line of sight was extremely difficult. There was we started on a catwalk that only allowed for um, one person wide, so you could only. Really and that was sideways, if I remember when I put that into play. Yes, you did. Yes, thank you. Um, so, uh, so that was a massive barrier to start with. Um, we started with a brief. That goes to the TL. He delivers that to the team who cannot see exactly what's to be executed. And then we cannot see really where the patient is. We cannot see really where the end of the high line is because we're all stuck in a line on a, on a catwalk that doesn't allow you to have field of view. So that was a massive, uh, massive stumbling block right off the start. Um, it was very hard for the team as a 
whole to get a grasp on what was to take place. Even with a good uh, briefing from the team lead, it was really hard to pick, um, figure out in your mind exactly how we had to pull this off. Uh, the next stumbling blocks were you couldn't use any stairs, you couldn't use any ladders, you had to access the patient via um, rope, which is fine, uh, but then you had to go down at least two decks that were staggered and then over a second deck onto uh, a deck where the uh, patient was. Um, and you're aiming to access the patient within 20 minutes of the brief? Yeah, so if you didn't access the patient within a certain amount of time, you actually got no points for that portion of it. Right. So the clock's on right off the bat. To it wasn't get to quite the patient. twenty, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, the clock's right on uh, to get off to the patient, and then we need to throw highlines over the far side. Um, it was a massively challenging exercise. I, I believe there were a few other teams that didn't complete this one as well. Um, and for us, it was the first, um, the first challenge we had, and uh, we had a, a really good morning and in leading into this, and uh, this one sort of caught us off guard. Um, like I said, the challenges posed were all those things, communication throughout the team, but also from controller to um, team lead, to team lead to the, the team, and then back through the ranks. Um, so deciding on far side, near side, deciding on deployment ropes and gear, deciding on um, whether or not to commit uh, a rescuer to the patient and leave him there. That was um, a big decision we had to make, and we, we, we left a rescuer with the patient, so that then leaves us with four hands left to build the high line across the, the span. Um, we almost got there. We didn't quite complete it. Uh, we got our lines up. We got our control lines up. We got our carriage going, all that kind of stuff. We got our patient package um, and our rescuer ready and waiting, uh, but we basically timed out. Um, it was a good effort. Yeah, uh, considering the challenges we faced, um, uh, I'm pretty happy with how we put it together. Um, we went with uh, uh, a... Double, um, double English Reeve, uh, double track line, and um, so yeah. double track, double English Reeve control line either side. Yep. yep. Yeah, and just for the listeners, uh, six out of the ten teams did not finish that event. Right. So. so, Don, any thoughts that you saw from there? I know you were in a hole most of the time. Or <laughs> yeah, I, I spent most of uh, those two days in the engine room of the USS Iowa, but um, that that was a challenging highline scenario, and you know. It takes a, a skilled team that's well-practiced. The other thing that Cole didn't mention on this is the far side, well, depending on which fire you made, the far side or the near side, you actually had to access by ladder, and there was only three rig points that you could utilize to do that. So the person was in a tied-off situation or suspended if they chose to, to yeah. rig the far side of that. So it was definitely a challenging high line. Oh, very much. Yeah. One thing that uh, that specific high line scenario highlighted think is the uh, the benefit of uh, rope access technique and, yeah. and, and actually a lot of these challenges at this competition uh, highlights the benefit of sprat or errata technique um, and there's a lot to be said for that and this highline in particular not just communication but the way that you deployed your system if you just you had to deploy your ropes in a certain fashion in order to make it work here because of the limited rigging points and the geographical terrain and if you did not you basically could not catch up yourself you would have to restart from zero and go again mm -hmm. and that was done deliberately <laughs> yeah. um next one don why don't we talk about yes. the escape trunk so the escape trunk or the the escape chute as some were calling it uh essentially it was about three stories below the main deck of the uss iowa in the engine room there is uh literally it's a it's a tube 
with a manway entrance at the bottom and a uh, ladder that you climb and to get if there's a fire or some kind of emergency in the engine room you have a, a means of escape you crawl inside this tube lock the door behind you close the door behind you and you have you can access the the broadway uh pathway and broadway three deck. floors below deck yeah and so it's quite a it, i think the bottom of that escape chute someone will probably correct me if i'm wrong but uh, that's probably about 60 feet below deck I th- yeah i think yeah. it's down at like floor seven yeah. below it's, it's deck. it's quite a ways down so uh, and so anyway, the challenge for for the teams going through the escape trunk scenario were to access a person who had climbed up the ladder inside the escape chute and had passed out and was uh, and unconscious for lack of a better term. He, this person was uh, they had to access this person who is non-responsive and uh, get them down to safety and evacuate them. Uh, but they could not use the escape chute to evacuate them, so I had to get them to the bottom of the escape chute package them in a uh, CFC dragon lift and uh, and then use AHDs to extricate that person from the engine room. And it's, it wasn't a great deal of vertical involved. Uh, there's two levels they had to, to uh, actually two and a half levels they had to, to access, but it's very tight confines. The, uh, the ladders were, were cluttered with valves and piping and as like you imagine an, an engine room in a, in a battleship would look like, it was very much that. Lots of things to bump your head on. Man, I must have bumped my head on a dozen times on that, uh, accessing up and down those ladders for the two days. But uh, the teams were did a really great job. Some were faster than others, definitely. Um, but uh, and, and the great thing about that scenario is it really forced the teams to work together and split the teams and yet still maintain communications and work in phases. So one, one portion of the team would access the patient, get them to the deck, while another portion of the team would build the first high-directional at the top of the first elevation, and then they, that, when they got that patient to the first layer, uh, probably to the first level, they would have to then deconstruct that and take it to the next one up and rebuild. So you had various uh, methods to do this. Uh, a lot of teams went with basic tripods. Some teams went with monopod, bipod configuration, so you have concurrent activity, you know, teams working at the same time building AHD. Uh, some, vic- some teams accessed uh, the victim with one, some teams access- accessed the victim with two people. Uh, and just various rigging techniques to for basically what was all for all intents and purposes like a tower style rescue inside a confined space. So it, it was a it was a challenge and uh, it was fun to watch. It was fun to see all these teams come together and work together. Uh, is one of those scenarios where communication was absolutely key and patient care was critical. And this goes back to uh, you know your question is is a live victim. It's a live patient, you know, in a rescue, simulated rescue scenario. Is that really feasible? And, you know, there are times when maybe uh, it would be better if we didn't have live. But for this one specifically, I, as the evaluator for this, I, I got to see immediately if their patient care and their patient handling was effective. And if it wasn't, uh, and I got to see, you know, I'm a value. I'm watching that patient the whole time. I'm checking in with them. I'm checking to see if they're okay. I'm looking to see if they're wincing, if they're if they're making a scowl of some sort. You know, they may not, they'll tough it out. If they're not having a good day, they don't want to, you know, bring their team down and lose marks, right? So, but it's but ultimately they're the reason why we're there. Without that person in that basket stretcher, nothing else would be happening. So they're paramount. The treatment of that person is paramount. Okay, from a rescue team point of view, Cole, that particular scenario. That was a good one for us. Um, that was definitely one of the quickest scenarios we had. It was the final scenario in all five for us. 
Um, and definitely the kind of terrain that uh, the Ronin team is very familiar with, the sort of industrial confined space, high angle mix setting where um, everybody's really comfortable seeing a lot of that kind of stuff um, on rescue standby and training and teaching and all that kind of stuff. So that one worked out really well for us. We started with the uh, single person spec, uh, pick off, just a Sprat style pick off down the tube. Um, fed the guy down the tube out the escape hatch, packaged into a dragon lift and um, in a very short amount of time. And uh, by the time the dragon lift was packaged, we'd had an, uh, a bipod set up on the first landing, just tied back with a few grions, um, had him up uh, in a matter of seconds. As soon as he was on the first deck, one leg out of the bipod, back up to the next level, and back, put the legs back together again, uh, tied off with some grions. Um, and the rigging went very, very quickly. The team worked very smoothly together. Um, honestly, probably could have done it faster, but I think by that point in the competition, uh, the guys just had their flow. They had their, their nerves were gone, and they were feeling good about what they, with what they were doing and uh, had a really good picture in their head of how each step was going to take place, and it kind of all came to fruition that way. So um, it was definitely a very good note to go out on as far as the competition was concerned. And, uh, again, like I said, I think those scenarios, that one, uh, the wing boy, the other one was more difficult, but uh, the two confined space scenarios that worked out pretty well for us um, probably lend uh, to the kind of experience a lot of the Ronin guys have um, in industry and, and so on and so forth. So I'm very happy with the way that one went. Um, it's, again, also, it's also important to note, like, how many dates did you guys have to actually train together before that conversation has been dropped? Yeah, as a team, I mean, the, the Ronin team is spanned from coast to coast in Canada, so... Um, actually having, we had five guys together to train together for about six days. Um, that was definitely the bulk of any of the training we had together. And then we had smaller groups, two and three, sort of together here and there sporadically for, you know, um, maybe five days over the course of our entire um, commitment as a team together. So, um, you know, in comparison to the teams that, are, that live together, train together, eat together, work in fire halls together, do all that kind of stuff, um, I'm really proud of what the team was able to accomplish uh, and put together. Um, it definitely was something that really came together on the first day and carried through uh, through the couple of days. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely, it, we knew it was going to be a hurdle to overcome, um, but I think we're all very impressed with the way it came together in, in total um, and how we finished in the competition and were able to um, come together very much as a team and have a you know some have a lot of fun and, and some really good spirits and uh, you know in that kind of aspect definitely created a good atmosphere for other teams we were competing with and and learning from and um, taking things from it was really a, an awesome learning experience for all of us um, and uh, really a good atmosphere. Okay, um, a lot of these scenarios we set up to make them really tough on team leads like team leads had to communicate and they had to multitask in order to get things done it was just the way it went uh you mentioned the wing void in there cool so yeah. we'll jump into the wing void next i don't know if don saw that one much at all oh no i saw it because i went in there to help prep it oh that's <laughs> right yes <laughs> we went and cleaned all that crap there. out of there and uh and our man norm chad needs uh deserves a special you know kudos for that because he was you know probably wore the most rust of all of us <laughs> so an interesting point on that scenario is as the teams competed in there we actually did notice a dip in oxygen the teams with all the people working down there did manage to breathe the oxygen down in that space even with ventilation occurring 
So not to the point where we had to evacuate anybody or it was a, an emergency. However, it's, uh, it's interesting to notice. It's still a live space. Yeah. yeah. Um, with the wing voids, for the folks that weren't there, was a horizontal porthole-style entry that was about three feet off the deck that led you into a narrow hallway. We call it a hallway, but um, I don't think you could stand up straight in it. And it was about three and a half, four feet wide. You went through another three portholes until you got to a vertical hole. Vertical hole with gear on would have been difficult to get through. That went down 10 feet. It then jogs over five, seven feet, goes down another 40 feet, and then goes back through more portholes horizontally. And that's where these folks all found their patient. Obviously, the goal of this particular scenario was strictly confined space. This to me was like the piece de resistance for this event. Um, it was a confined space scenario that's never been done in any other event I've seen. So from your guys' point of view, Cole, how was that scenario? Um, it was fantastic. It was uh, challenging and dirty and shitty. And it was all the, all the good things about working hard and uh, you know pulling something off that... Uh, seems insurmountable. I, I think we pulled out of there with like a minute and a half left. Yeah, I was. the guys were done my scenario, and I'd come down to watch you guys on that. And Las Vegas was coming out the hole on the other side. I think you guys were in the B-flight hole. And yeah. Yeah, watching these guys try to race that clock out of there was and, impressive. And, and the, the, that particular challenge was one that we didn't really have to insert a lot of complexity in there <laughs> to, make, to make it challenging. The, uh, Except for some, the, some the pointy wire ladder of death that was all the way down the 40-foot hole. You weren't supposed to touch that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't. That was, that was the complexity. We yeah. didn't touch it. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So, like, for instance, like in the escape shoot, we uh, made it a requirement that the teams had to use an Arizona Vortex as the HD. How they used it was up to them, but they had to use that specifically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but the, for the wing voids, it, that, was, that was just straight up sucky. Yeah, that's true. It, it, there was there wasn't really any uh, exclusions. It was just here's your space. Go get your patient, yeah. um, and, and that was hard enough for sure. Uh, I don't know how many teams didn't finish that one, but there were a lot of teams that were very close to not finishing. I know. I I'm, I want to guess at least half didn't finish. Um, I yeah. I think I know four that didn't for certain. Okay. So yeah, it was uh, it was yeah. a lot of fun though. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Like I said, everybody got dirty and. Uh, had to work their butts off to make it happen. Uh, and it was definitely um, a scenario that were, you know, you're playing like telephone tag the whole way through because you'd have to have somebody kind of at each deck level um, to, you know, ferry information back to your TL who should be out of the hole, uh, at least one man out of the hole, and, uh, um, you know, do the lifts between each port um, and make that work, however you decided to do that. Um, you know, whether it was running a line straight from the first hole down and then deviating your lines around or, um, you know, or something more clever like uh, the way the guys rigged it up originally um, by, you know, deviating uh, a straightforward one with a Kootenai carriage, which I thought was brilliant after I was told about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the whole part. Of, that's the whole point of the, you know, the, the whole point of the competition is you've got uh, 10 teams in there doing the same thing. And uh, very few people are doing the same thing. They're all trying to achieve the same goal, but very few of them are actually doing exactly the same thing. So uh, to be able to take away a perspective like that, hear about what the other teams did differently, um, is how we all learn as professionals and figure out uh, different perspectives and maybe better ways to do things or 
um, different perspectives, uh, the, the way other people are looking at the same problem. Um, and that's invaluable information. That's the goal of Grimte. Yeah. That's just to share those ideas. Yeah. It, it helps make that whole technical rescue world a little bit smaller. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to jump to the next one just on time. Uh, go to the Flybridge. It's the one I was running, uh, myself and Kelly out of Washington. And that one in, was a requirement. You climbed from the 05 deck to the 11 deck, so it's a 60-foot climb. And you had to take a patient and just lower them down to the 04 deck. Doesn't sound like a huge issue, but it was fairly tight confines. And I know on my side, four of the five teams I had rolled their patient when they had them on a tag line. They tagged them too low and the patient ended up going face first down. Yeah. They were away from the, the structure. It's not like anybody got hurt, but there were certainly, you know, some screw ups with that. And just the climbing. Um, a lot of the teams... I was even asked, how many people can I put on ropes? And my response was, you can put as many people on ropes as the ropes are designed to hold. And then they would just stare at me and not actually put two people on rope. And, you know, two people on the main may have been problematic with the 90 degree edge, but a person on the safety and a person on the main climbing opposites, much like a uh, rope access style pickoff, could have got people up there a little bit faster. And there were teams that didn't finish that. So from the rescue team point of view that particular i think that was your first scenario on day two yeah that was our first scenario on day two uh that one went really well for us i'm very proud of the way that one come, came together uh we didn't climb uh two on a rope um but we did get up there pretty quickly our guys um, spent a fair bit of time climbing rope and you know um getting sort of in shape for that uh probably me the least in shape for that but sweating my bag off by the time i got up there but uh, it really worked out really well. Uh, we got it to the, the top, and by the time we were all up there, you had to get four to the top and leave one at the bottom. Yes, that, that's that, right. That was, I forgot to mention that. That was the caveat. So, uh, <laughs> you ha had to have, get four of your teammates to the top, um, and you can leave one guy on the deck to help rig and do all that stuff. And then you had to get them down to a second level from when you're, where you started, which was, um, say, 15 feet away from your start point and away from the ropes. So you had to deviate a little bit to get around the, the second landing. Um but again, yeah, the problem of flipping the basket. So you get up to the top. We, we had our patient packaged. Um, I chose to the, uh, ride the basket down with the patient, which uh, worked out pretty well. Um, uh, able to walk him off the uh, side of the ship until we got to the undercut. And then once we got to the undercut, I flipped around the side and just hung beside the basket and kept him, uh, kept him level um, with the tagline as it went uh, sort of to a 45. Um, that worked really well. We got all the way to the, down to the second deck and then uh, shot everybody down to the first deck and then uh, rigged up a retrievable anchor to go, you know, like uh, 10 feet or whatever it was down to the second deck uh, to finish the evolution. But, you bring up two interesting points on that is uh, the retrievable anchor. Almost everybody did that. Yeah. We had yeah. ropes. They didn't look like they would touch the bottom yeah. deck, but if you actually went and dropped them... Uh -huh. I, I, and I rigged them that way accordingly, but uh, yeah. most people tried to do pull-through anchors. Two teams lost it because they screwed their pull-through anchors. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's just a difficult thing to, I mean, you've got all the time in the world left, but your ropes are stuck. Yeah. Um, the other thing, when you talk about different scenarios and different people doing it differently, I saw one skate block, one dedicated main, dedicated safety on ID ASAP. One TTRS on MPDs, one TTRS on um, rig and MPD, yep. or sorry, rig and ID. So yeah, I mean, just a plethora of different ways. People rode the basket, people tight line tagged the basket, people 
loose tried to loose line tag the basket. So it was interesting to see that. Yeah, typically for us, we almost always run like a shark fin and, and a unified butterfly, something along those lines. That's the, the, the comfortable uh, attachment point for, for our team. Right on. So the last one is the bow scenario. So from a... From the staff point of view, Don, the bow scenario, you, did you get to see that at all? I got to see portions of it, um, and that one was the, uh, the, spe- the specific event where no live load was to cross over water. And now we get back into the live load conversation, and that was one of the parameters on this. If a, teams were told they were not to put a live load over the water, they had to swap it out with a basket. One team did attempt to, and they were shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, this was a parameter, was no people over water. And stuff did fall into the drink. I think LA County Fire is going to be picking some pieces out of the, not the team, but the actual department that works there. They have a dive team right next to them. They can go, you know, swimming in there and fishing and getting stuff. The shiny rescue gear. The shiny rescue gear with some salt water on it. But, um, I mean, if that's that's their choice, then so be it. That's fine. That's no problem. It's just one of the parameters you have to play within, right? So this particular scenario was, um, I want to say it was a 40-foot lift or 50-foot lift out of a hole. Yeah, something like that. You had a bit of a deviation, so down to the first deck, you were in like a 15-foot-ish, and then you had to jog over five feet or more. So the deviation put your ropes on the on the manhole, so you had yeah. to think about edge pro and rubbing there and stuff like that. And then you went down like three decks to the bottom, uh, something like that. Yeah, so it was, when you says three decks, you're still talking probably 60 feet or so. Yeah. Um, and once they got into the top, they had to swap over to Rescue Randy, and then... Get them to shore. Most people decided to use a high line in that portion to do that. Also into the hole, you had to have two rescuers to the patient, and you could not have, uh, both rescuers had to stay on one line. So that's a, you know, a rigging complication that for some teams might have been a pain in the butt, uh, and was also a pain in the butt for us. Uh, it was definitely one of those things that it's manageable, but when you start f- forcing li- lines into a situation like that, you know, you know, run into some serious line management that becomes very important. And the interesting part of that is when you plan these scenarios, people, teams are asked to bring six lines. They're asked to bring enough lines to do um, a double track high line. So five if they're running Prusik's or ASAPs instead of a double English reeve. So enough to build a reeving high line. But if you build an MA in there, and you put in the line for the patient, all of a sudden, if you add in your line that the rescuers are on, there's a you start running out of lines to, in order to pre-work the next scenario, yep. like the next portion of that scenario. And that was one of the parameters we kind of played in with that. Yep. Well, that's good. It, it introduces some complexity in line management, and you have to manage your equipment. You, yep. Even if you show, roll up to the rescue scene with a great big fire truck full of stuff, you're not always going to have everything you need. No. So before this event as well, which made this unique, there was training that occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, how was that for you? I mean, you're a fairly experienced rescuer. You've got uh, some time on most of these tools. Was it valuable? Was it not valuable? And I guess you should back up a bit and say this is CMC's event. CMC put on the training with their equipment. And, you know, was there value to that? I have to be honest, and no slight to CMC or anybody else at this point, but going into it, uh, I was a little annoyed that we were going to do this. Um, you know, I was a little annoyed we we're going to have to practice basic skills with somebody else's gear that they wanted to just to use, and that was you know a, you know a pigeonholed vision that I had going into it. Um, but starting the day and, and bringing the teams into these small exercises and learning little bits and pieces of new stuff. Um, and then taking that opportunity to use it as a team building exercise, 
uh, it became very valuable. Um, like, uh, you know, simple stuff, learning the dragon lift. I gotta be honest, I, I really like that packaging device now. It's, I'm, I'm pretty much sold on it. I really like that thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, packaging in the basket's a little different than we would normally do. Um, you know, we just, uh, the other rescuer and I really drilled on that hard. Um, and got our times down and get consistent with that stuff, and that made us, that gave us confidence and felt good. And then we did, uh, you know, we did a little uh, patient movement exercise that we learned from uh, a good friend of ours. Uh, uh, you can mention his name, he's been mentioned on here before. Mr. Arnold Pena. <laughs> um, taken a lot of good stuff from that man, and uh, we used one of his patient moving exercises. And that, that there became uh, really a catalyst that, that brought the team together and everybody kind of stopped on the rescue ground and, uh, you know, took notice of the camaraderie and how much fun we were having. Um, I, think, I think that helped lift spirits a little bit and uh, it definitely brought us together as a team. Um, okay. You know, chanting and singing and, you know, uh, soldiering along. It was, it was pretty awesome. So, Don, from a Grimp point of view, I mean, you've been to a few. <laughs> um, there is no training at other Grimp events. Is this, like, what were your thoughts on it going in? Um, I believe for, well, first off, uh, I'll back it up a little bit. The culture of this sort of thing in North America is, uh, it's a bit different than, I mean, going into Grimp North America, there had already been at least 13 incarnations or 12, in, you know. I think there's 13 in Europe, yeah. five in Taiwan, and one yeah. in China by the time this came so, to be. Yeah, so like they had got their systems down how to run event, how to run the event, how to put on, you know, how to host it. And, you know, like uh, CMC Rescue did a really good job of, uh, you know, finding their feet and, and finding a way to make this work. And, and it was a good call to bring all these uh, people under the same roof and give them this, you know, a level playing field to work with. And there were some teams that were forced to work with equipment they had never seen before. So it's only fair to give them that opportunity to get to know it, practice it, and, yeah, practice with it, and, uh, you know, find out how it works, right? Okay, so the other thing that occurred to this that you don't see it a lot of Grimp Days, uh, Grimp Day in Europe, Courant will usually have a booth, maybe Condor Safety, Petzl previously. These guys had, you know, vendors, basically a vendor section, and... That I mean, a, the CMC clutch being remo- being shown there, I mean, that's a brand new device and it's, you know, these guys, these vendors, sorry, pretty much brought their A-games in a lot of ways to this, showing the latest and newest jazz that's out there. And now f- from a competitor, was that worthwhile? Did you wander around, take a look at that stuff at all? Or were you so focused on the event that that kind of just blurred into something else? No, for sure. It was nice to have that there. It kind of gave like another. It was home base, and, and it gave like a you know, it gave the 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 spectators something somewhere to hang out and something to do, and um, definitely a chance for us to mull around and look at new gear and stuff like that. It really gave the whole place a bit of a you know a, an event vibe, right? Like there was a big home base. There was tents up all over the place. There was stuff happening, and um, when people weren't watching the events, um, they were hanging out there having a good time and rubbing elbows with each other and trading secrets and doing all that stuff that we need to happen in the in- industry to um, to further the rescue community's knowledge of gear and techniques and all that kind of stuff. It's the, it, it's the right place to do that. Uh, it's the right people to see that and hear that. 
Um, I think it definitely had a, a good place there, and, and uh, it was definitely welcome and, and should have been there. There was also quite a few people who weren't competing but were very into the industry in various capacities. And, you know, it's a big draw. Good North America was a big draw for a lot of people involved in rescue and just wanted to see what it was all about. And sure, while they're there, you can check out all the latest and greatest, right? Like right now, FDIC is happening, I think, right now as we speak. Yeah. You know, where that all the same thing's happening, all the latest and greatest, you know, for the you know, fire service. And, you know, for technical rescue, there's no reason why we can't even bump that up a little more, right? And then have more vendors. And I think it was a great idea. It went very well. It was great to see competitors uh, in the industry with booths side by side or close proximity and everyone got to meet each other and you know, there's a social networking portion to that as well. Right on. So, yes or no, this needs to happen again. Don? 100% needs to happen again. Cool. Yeah, 100%. Oh, there you go. CMC. Well, you got uh, three opinions on it to put it back together out of the, you know, so many hundred thousand that live in North America. That's it for podcast number 20. Thank you very much. Have a good day, gents. Thanks. Thank you.